Good afternoon. My name is Tan Sien Lee and I'm an assistant professor at the National University of Singapore Law School. I work primarily in the area of ASEAN integration, regional organizations and international law. And I have been working on ASEAN law and institutions for about 15 years. My lecture today is entitled The Rise of Southeast Asian Regionalism, Its Ambitions, Laws and Institutions in the ASEAN Community. The Association of Southeast Asian Nations, commonly known as ASEAN, comprises the 10 member states of Brunei, Cambodia, Indonesia, Laos, Malaysia, Myanmar, Philippines, Singapore, Thailand and Vietnam. It has often been either dismissed as one, an ineffective organisation that produces rhetoric rather than law and action, or two, ASEAN has been lauded as a useful multilateral forum where member states can safeguard their interests and achieve their strategic aims. So which is it? Is it useful or is it ineffective? My position is that while it is true that ASEAN has achieved far less than what it has said it would do and is therefore arguably ineffective, the existence of ASEAN has been objectively very, very useful to its member states as well as external partners. Moving forward, ASEAN knows that it must move beyond this reputation of being ineffective and also it needs to move towards a useful mode of regionalism. Therefore, it is taking very serious steps to ensure that its undertakings are effective. The simplest way to explain this bifurcated phenomenon of usefulness and ineffectiveness is to divide the ASEAN developmental trajectory into two phases. The flexible diplomatic phase of 1967 to 2000 and the rule of law and institutions phase that is post 2007. In particular, I shall concentrate on this post 2007 institutions building and lawmaking phase which encompasses the contemporary rise of ASEAN, its community building processes, its evolving laws and institutions and what all this means within the context of international law. So ASEAN was first established in 1967 as a purely political organization by the ASEAN five members, Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand and the Philippines. And the rationale was to bring about peace and prosperity to the region and to the member economies. The foundation instrument, the Bangkok Declaration, was only a soft law, only a declaration. There was no treaty, there was no hard law whatsoever in ASEAN that the member states, the five member states, only wanted to have this loose diplomatic grouping without any legally binding obligations was very unsurprising because of the tense regional relations in the region at that time. These regional tensions included the insecurities of the Cold War, external communist threats, and these communist threats were coming down from the north into Southeast Asia, and there were also domestic insurgencies that were support for communism. And of course, because all the ASEAN five members were emerging from the ashes of the Cold War, and there were many post-colonial independence movements, the, the threat of armed conflict was also very, very high. Therefore, ASEAN was a community building process. It was also a confidence building mechanism for the five member states of Southeast Asia. After about a decade, law and institutions were then finally established in ASEAN. This was in 1976 during the first ASEAN summit. There was the adoption of the first 
Treaty of the Region, the Treaty of Amity and Cooperation, as well as the agreement to establish an ASEAN Secretariat. However, that was the end of the adoption of hard law in ASEAN at that time, because ASEAN cooperation activities were then relegated to, again, to soft law in the Bali Concord One, again, of 1976. Throughout the rest of the Cold War, and really throughout the rest of ASEAN's evolution to 2007, many cooperation instruments were adopted, both treaties and declarations, but the level of implementation was quite low. There was a survey done of the implementation levels of ASEAN instruments up to 2007, and the rate was of compliance was about 30%. But anyway, the real value of ASEAN to member states was not laws and institutions at that time, but actually the stabilization of regional relations through regular meetings and discussions. We remember that the tensions were very high, so it was not unforeseeable that they wanted to come together to build relations and to trust each other more towards moving towards cooperation activities. And all this was very successful and it enabled every ASEAN member state of that time to concentrate on nation building such that the original ASEAN five member states were considered the rising Asian tigers of the 1990s. This economic dynamic changed when the lower developing countries of Cambodia, Laos, Myanmar and Vietnam joined in the 1990s. In terms of other external geopolitical challenges that ASEAN faced in the 1990s to the mid-2000s, the grouping faced, the grouping now of 10, faced the Asian financial crisis, the dot-com bust and other world economic setbacks. There were health pandemics that decimated and were it the regional governments a lot, such as SARS and avian flu, and the avian flu keeps recurring and it is a constant threat to the region. And there is a real need, and all the other member states realise this, that the region needs to be more competitive, a more competitive regional market to compete with the rise of China and India. So all the ASEAN 10 member states have now realised that the function of the grouping had changed. So although the political modality had been very useful, the member states realised that they needed first to cooperate more seriously to face external challenges together, and secondly, they needed to see the substantive results of all these cooperation activities. The crux of the issue that they found was that there were enough ASEAN agreements out there the real problem was that they needed to effectivize, to ensure the implementation and the results of all these agreements. To do so, compliance and monitoring mechanisms were therefore necessary. To achieve this aim, ASEAN members took serious steps to address this problem and to transform the grouping into a formal organization with international legal personality that abided by the rule of law and institutions. So ASEAN pre-2007 was a political organization, a flexible political diplomatic organization, but post-2007 it becomes an international organization that abides by international law and standards and norms. And these changes were set in place through the very, very first 
Constituent Treaty of the Organization, the ASEAN Charter of 2007, on the 40th anniversary of ASEAN's establishment. The preamble of the ASEAN Charters explicitly stated that the member states of ASEAN would undertake to establish through that charter the legal and institutional framework of ASEAN. So what does this mean in terms of substantive action? So member states would first build a tripillar ASEAN community comprising first the ASEAN political security community that is concerned with all matters of regional peace and security among the member states and also vis-a-vis -vis the external partners. Treaties like the Treaty of Amity of Cooperation that was adopted in 1976 and regional fora like the ASEAN Regional Fora and the ASEAN Defence Ministers Meeting are managed under this pillar. Human rights and democracy activities are also coming under the ASEAN political and security community. This community advocates primarily the core international norms of the non-use of force and the peaceful settlement of disputes. Because of the sensitive nature of the issues within this pillar, such as human rights and democratic movements, less legalized modalities are used. In this pillar, the ASEAN political and security community, ASEAN member states generally prefer to rely on the traditional modes of diplomatic means. We move on to the second pillar, the ASEAN economic community. And this is now the foremost pillar of the entire ASEAN community, where the most resources and efforts are focused. It is also the pillar that generates the most laws and institutions, most hard laws and also different types of bodies that ensure economic integration throughout the ASEAN community. This ASEAN economic community aims at creating the single market and production base of the region. This is to allow intra-regional trade to grow and also to foster regional trade vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world and also to attract external in investment into the region so that we achieve greater prosperity and development. And we come now to the third pillar, the ASEAN sociocultural community. And this is kind of a catch-all pillar that oversees the entire spectrum of human development activities such as education, welfare, housing, the rights of the elderly, welfare of women and children, so on and so forth. Because of the progressive nature of such goals, ASEAN states prefer, again, like the first pillar, to adopt soft laws to enunciate the socio-cultural cooperation. To ensure that the new legal and institutional framework of ASEAN was upheld and all these substantive agreements elaborating the ASEAN community goals were implemented, the ASEAN Charter further enunciated that dispute settlement mechanisms and monitoring mechanisms and enforcement mechanisms were to epitomize ASEAN's transformation to the rule of law and institutions. Essentially, what this meant was that six dispute settlement mechanisms were outlined in Chapter 8 of the ASEAN Charter. The first mechanism is called the Alternative Dispute Resolution Mechanism. This isn't a legalized or you know, an adjudicative process. Rather, this Alternative Dispute Resolution Mechanism is ASEAN's traditional way of dispute management. It calls for dialogue, consultation, negotiation, good offices, conciliation or mediation. So all the disputant parties would talk out 
their conflict and it would be good that it was resolved at this level. But of course, if and many disputes cannot be resolved through diplomacy, there is recourse to legal mechanisms. And the first legal mechanism is an instrument specific mechanism. This is outlined in Article 24 of the ASEAN Charter. What this calls for is that when there is a dispute, the treaty in question will be scrutinized to see whether there is a specific dispute resolution clause that is provided within this treaty. If there is, then the first port of call, the first recourse of dispute resolution would be this specific clause. And this is quite a limited mode of dispute resolution because only ASEAN, certain ASEAN economic agreements would have this specific clause for dispute resolution. What happens then to the multitude of ASEAN economic agreements that could essentially potentially be disputed? There is the 2004 ASEAN Protocol on Enhanced Dispute Settlement Mechanism, which is also found in Article 24 of the ASEAN Charter. This is only for economic agreements and it mimics very much the WTO Dispute Settlement Mechanism albeit with shorter time frames. Apart from economic disputes, there are other types of disputes that could fall under the first pillar, political security or sociocultural. What happens? These disputes then come under the fourth mechanism within the Treaty of Amity and Cooperation that was, we saw was adopted in 1976. These are the tradition of ASEAN has developed that the Treaty of Amity and Cooperation oversees peace and security disputes such as territorial conflicts or other treaty ambiguities. But if we see that the crux of, ASEAN, the of ASEAN's turn to rule and institutions is falling on the possession of dispute settlement mechanisms ASEAN has now instituted a catch-all dispute settlement clause in Article 25 of the ASEAN Charter. It states that for all other disputes that cannot be resolved through alternative means, it is not an economic dispute and it cannot be resolved by the Treaty of Amity and Cooperation, then this Article 25 would therefore take care of this dispute. But of course, given the sensitive nature of state-to-state -state disputes, we understand that the five above mechanisms may not procure a suitable resolution. So what happens? There is recourse to a political mechanism, which is the ASEAN Summit of the Heads of State or Government. Article 26 of the ASEAN Charter states that disputing parties may refer any unresolved dispute to the ASEAN leaders. However, this has never been tested and there is no standard protocol or rules of procedure of how such political mechanisms could procure a suitable outcome for the disputing parties. The bigger question, the bigger legal and institutional question is to what extent are dispute settlement mechanisms a real solution to ASEAN's compliance woes and the fulfillment of its community building processes? The reason this is asked is because all the ASEAN dispute settlement mechanisms are ad hoc and none has ever been activated.
This begs the question of, will they ever be used, and when? And what would catalyze such action? It is not unforeseeable in the realm of economic integration that and economic treaties being more and more utilized and taken seriously, that member states and external parties would activate the economic dispute settlement mechanisms in due course. But again, back to the bigger question, studies have queried the importance of dispute settlement mechanisms in encouraging compliance. In certain stages, and we understand that beyond the economic realm, political security and sociocultural cooperation mainly rely on soft law. And because they're soft law, there are no enforcement or dispute settlement mechanisms. So monitoring mechanisms are found to be possibly more helpful in this sense. And in the larger picture, the rule of law and institutions in ASEAN does not exist in a vacuum. It necessitates, at the very fundamental level, better lawmaking. The treaties, the soft law, the declarations all have to be drafted in accordance with legal norms and principles and clarity. And we understand that there is an innate ambiguity in legal language, but all those things need to follow a regular procedure. There needs also to be, and this is a non-political issue, there needs to be greater resources and capacity. We understand that the ASEAN region is a developing region and therefore it needs many, many resources, financial, human capital, technical expertise, so on and so forth, to encourage the growth of, rule of, of the rule of law and institutions in the region. Then we come to something of the technical bureaucracy. We need to empower the ASEAN Secretariat in regional administration without it being seen as a threat to national sovereignty. And this is a very important point if we need the regional organization to grow and to achieve the community building aims. And lastly, just as in every other international legal regime, the rule of law needs to be effective in national jurisdictions. This calls for national implementation and the support of public agencies and civil servants within every ASEAN member state. So ASEAN regional laws need to be seen as effective and to be made effective in the national jurisdictions. To have this sort of transformation could neutralize the tangle of supranationality, as well as to bring higher compliance of ASEAN law within the realm of domestic administrative law. Currently, however, we understand that there is a very limited role for ASEAN law in the member states, and it is still uncertain in which national courts where ASEAN law can be most actively adjudicated. So now we are in the year, at the end of the year 2016. The tri-pillar ASEAN community was finally established after the adoption of the ASEAN Charter in 2007 on the last day of 2015. So the ASEAN community was proclaimed as established on the 31st of December 2015. There has been about eight years, almost a decade, of the practice of the rule of law and institutions in ASEAN. And while the rule of law and institutions of ASEAN is improving, there remains a lot to do over and beyond the reliance on dispute settlement mechanisms. 
the transformation of ASEAN to the rule of law and institutions is very, very strenuous and costly for all the member states and also the ASEAN Secretariat. This fact is recognized. And there are signs of metamorphosis of transformative fatigue. However, we see that also perseverance does exist. There is a belief in the rule of law and institutions and also factually speaking external factors will continue to exert pressure for ASEAN to transform. For the reputation, credibility and substantive aims, gains of ASEAN in the international legal order, we believe that all the ASEAN member states will continue to stay the course on the rule of law and institutions that they have committed to in the Charter and in the future blueprints to come.